Okay, my name's Tanisha. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1012, otherwise it's on the screen behind me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. When the check came, I was curious and excited. What millions of dollars will be waiting there? How will my life change? And I opened it up and I soon realized that the 28 cents wouldn't even pay the stamp to send a letter back saying thank you. And then I felt really entitled to more. Well, surely, you know, all my, my fees I've paid, they've charged me more than 28 cents. The entitlement soon left after I kind of realised how funny that was, that they'd sent me a cheque for 28 cents. But, you know, when we get to Mark 9 today, a sense of entitlement seems to have taken over the followers of Jesus here. In fact, all of Mark 9, after the transfiguration, is really about this sense of entitlement. They see, we see that the theme of Mark is not only being blind to Jesus as who he is, but after the transfiguration, the disciples become blind to what it means to follow the glorious Jesus. How easy to think that church belongs to us. How easy to think that the way we have done things in the past is the right way. How easy to imagine that we are entitled to a role, a position, because we've been here the longest or did it in the past. Now, this, these few verses are short, but they are really hard to get your head around, really hard to work through today. And so I'm going to pray that God's grace would come to each of us and his spirit confront us for the next 20 minutes or so because this is all about relationships in the church. And the big idea is let's be big-hearted people of God who take our sin seriously. That's what we'll see. But we need to pray before we do that. Our great God, we thank you that in your kindness, Jesus comes and reveals us our sin, shows us a way of life with you on the other side of forgiveness and grace. May your spirit press into each of us what it means to follow you. Yes, it is hard and tricky and a costly call, but Lord, we want to be with you and glorify you, and sometimes that is hard. 
So give us your grace and mercy to live as obedient followers of you for the joy that awaits us in Christ. Amen. So the first part comes in verses 38 to 41, and this is really all about relational integrity. Now, at this point in the narrative of chapter 9, John, not Peter, but John, is feeling a little bit offended and a little bit fragile at what's just happened. So back in 17 to 19, John and the 11, they tried to cast a demon out, but it failed. It didn't work. They couldn't do it. Then when we get to chapter 9, 38 to 41, they come across a man. We don't know who he is, and he's having success where they failed. John seems to be licking his wounds here. And someone who's not in the inner circle of Jesus' followers is doing something they haven't been able to do. And so John, as he, as he decides, he tells him off. And then he brags to Jesus that he stopped someone doing that. Here's what he says. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, but don't worry, we told him to stop because he's not one of us. You know, instead of receiving someone in Jesus' name, the disciples, John, uses Jesus as an exclusion zone. Rather than celebrating the evil and the darkness going away from this individual, John wants to stop it. He's starting to get a bit entitled that he has the rights to Jesus. And then Jesus replies very gently by giving John some perspective that he needs. He says, John, team, don't stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus does not want them to worry about what others are doing, but to know that mighty works come with a mighty love for his name. Jesus reminds them, if you love him, you can't say anything bad about him. The point isn't other Christians. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. You see, more often than not, other Christians are on the same page as you with the beauty, worth, value of Jesus. And when, says, when someone does something out of a love for the name of Jesus, it's more often they, they actually love him. There is more unity in the church, big C church, than disunity. In fact, to make it even more explicit, Jesus just brings it down to not the big life-changing things like casting out a demon that God is pleased with. Like, do you know that giving some water to someone in the name of Jesus, you means Jesus is just as thrilled to bits? Anything done in the name of Jesus to show his beauty and value is going to be rewarded by God. Something as small as a drink matters infinitely to God. Does it matter to you? You see, faithfulness isn't measured by what you do, but in whose name you do it in. It's not about you doing something great and magnificent. It's about the great name of Jesus going forward in that moment. And that's what John didn't see. Which is perhaps why Jesus now directs his disciples to not just value relationships with others who follow him, but to honestly think about their relationship with sin and how it damages themselves and others. So in 942, then in 950, we have the bookend to the big idea in this next section, given in the positive, then the negative. So Jesus says, don't cause someone to stumble. That's the negative. But the positive is be at peace with others. So take, your, take seriously your relationship with sin. 
In verse 42, little ones isn't referencing a child. It just means someone of little importance, small in significance, that sort of thing. These verses as well, you'll find a parallel in Matthew, Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, though, Jesus talks about lust, but here he's talking about relationships. Because in mind, when Jesus says this, he has in mind the man casting out the demon. You can imagine, if John is anxious to stop him, he's not one of the twelve, you must not do that, it will be easy for John to slip into the mindset that looks down on him because he's not one of the close followers of Jesus, as he did. And Jesus wants to stop that train of thought. And he does so with some really, really confronting images to make the point that relational integrity among Christians matters for your eternal future. In fact, the rest of verse 42 says, having a concrete block tied to your neck and thrown in the sea is better than causing someone to stumble in the faith. John must have felt that as Jesus said it, I bet. The word cause comes from the Greek word scandalon, which is where we get our word scandalous from. We use it mostly in the sense of shock and horror. It's scandalous that so-and-so has done that. It's a scandalous thing when this happens, right? But originally, in in Greek-speaking people, it was used to talk about the downfall of someone as they fell into sin, and you would lead someone in a scandalous behavior. The point is that it's scandalous that someone who follows Jesus, who has their own sin forgiven, who has tasted and seen the grace of God to them against their own evil, would then lead someone else into evil would then lead someone else down a path of sin and causing them to stumble. That's scandalous. Because the one who causes someone to stumble, stumbles themselves. That's why Jesus changes the focus in 9.43 to 49. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. Notice that instead of if anyone, the phrase changes to if your hand, if your foot, if your eye. It's far more personal. Followed by the same phrase after each of them causes you to stumble, causes you to stumble, causes you to stumble. Instead of causing someone else to stumble, you cause you to stumble. And then drastic action is mentioned every time about removing this part of you, as opposed to having drastic action taken against all of you by being thrown over the side of a cliff. And then there's the repeated phrase, you notice, life, life, the kingdom of God. Contrast to the very uncomfortable reference to living in hell. Now, this scandalous image isn't to encourage you to cut your hands off. That isn't going to solve the problem, actually, because in Mark 7, 15, Jesus says what's inside is defiling you, not what's on the outside. If you could remove the problem of sin by cutting your fingers off, then Jesus wouldn't need to go to the cross and die, you see. But Jesus was pierced on the cross for your sin, taking your judgment. He was cut, so you don't have to do that to yourself, you see. His wounds heal you, not the other way around. But the point here is that we take our remaining sin seriously because it does so much damage. Jesus has severed the tree of sin. He's removed the poison of sin and death, but the roots still sprout up and the fangs are still sharp. 
You see, your body is precious to God. God made, but from time to time, as I'm sure you will know, it does cause you to sin, right? But don't think sin is any less serious. Don't slip into the thought that, well, the more I sin, the more grace can abound. Because those who love Jesus want to delight in Him. The scandalous picture Jesus uses brings home the point you must take appropriate action because losing a hand is better than going to hell. And I really wish Jesus didn't say that. I really wish he did not use the word hell. To be honest, it is a topic, it is a theme through the whole Bible that if I could take it out, I would. And I would never preach on it. There is lots to say about the joy that awaits the new life for believers for eternity. And and Damien began by reading Revelation 21, right? But there's another side too. There is an eternal state for those outside of Christ, and it's not easy to think or to teach about. Yesterday at Edwards basketball game, we finished, and it was great. They won, and we had a reward ceremony, and someone in that room had a shirt on that said, hell is real, repent. And do you know what I thought? When I saw that, I cringed. And I thought, can you take it off? It's a bit confronting. But I can't. I can't ignore or dismiss that message. And so I'm going to stand with the T-shirt wearing guy and Jesus, because he taught about this more than anyone else in the Bible, and say, God is holy, just and righteous in his assessment of you and me. And whatever he comes up with in the end... That must be true. And so we tread fearfully and carefully. We don't gloat or laugh or say this with joy for the next few moments to think about this. We plea by God's grace and mercy that no one would end up there. The word hell used here comes from the word Gehenna, which was the name of a valley to the south of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament times, it was the place where the Israelites sacrificed their children to Molech. It was a horrible place with a horrible thing being done. And when that practice eventually stopped, no one wanted to live there, so they turned it into the city rubbish dump. If you couldn't afford a burial for your loved one, you would put them in Gehenna. If you died on the street having no family friends, they would just drag you to Gehenna and you would die there. You would get burned and worms would just eat what was in there, the rubbish. And then Jesus says, hell, Gehenna. Imagine this real, quite unpleasant place. You're just over there. You would have all seen it, team. Probably smelt it before. Walk past it. Imagine this valley. But it's a picture of an eternity because he says the fire never goes out. And the worms don't finish decomposing stuff either in verse 48. It's a place of punishment that lasts forever with nothing good and no God. In Matthew, again, Jesus talks about this place as having darkness, no light. Which is odd, because you think, how can the fire never go out and it be dark? Well, I think the easiest way is to say there's no fire in hell. It's far worse than that. But please don't think of hell as God's own gulag or Guantanamo Bay, kind of in the basement of the new heavens, in which criminals are tortured for the amusement of their captors. That's not the point. Think about it like a heavenly Hague. Think about it where the inhumanity of evil is laid before a tribunal. 
fitting compensation carried out to those who sinned against an infinitely holy God and other human beings who bear God's image. Hell is about justice, not primarily torture. Yes, it's painful and sad and terrifying. God's judgment so sweeping that every single word will receive his judgment and assessment. Imagine that. Dig up your old MySpace page. Never had one, have you? Some of you have if you're a millennial. Every word on there brought out by God one day. Imagine what you wrote on the newspaper in 1983 about your boss when you had lunch. Every word will give an account for. Think of hell as part of the future reality that quarantines evil, kind of like the last traces of smallpox are stuck in a secure lab so it can never escape. And that knowing about that is an act of God's mercy that no one should go there. Not talking about this and the words of judgment would be like saying to a citizen of Pompeii that should Mount Vesuvius erupt, a straw umbrella will keep you safe. You see, Jesus wants us to approach our remaining sin with the severity and the power of being willing to take drastic action so that sin will not reign over us in a gathering and that we will not go down that future path. Just think of the context here as well when Jesus says it. John has tried to stop someone in Jesus' name, but Jesus would rather get John thinking more about his own sin than worrying about others. After all, Jesus deliberately chose to use a scandalous image so we would see the scandalous nature of sin and the effects it has on each other and our eternal state. So here's a story of someone I know many years ago who read these verses and under God cut his hand off, not literally, so that sin would not have any mastery over him. Such is the effect that lust and porn had on this person, his conscience, his relationship with God, that he chose to have the very oldest, most basic phone that you could ever find and not in a million years ever get to the internet. Now, that restricted his life in the culture, right? In lots of good ways. He could not receive funny cat pictures and memes from friends. What a tragedy, he would say. But such was the beauty and worth of Jesus that in thinking carefully about his sin, in carefully about the temptation and the pressure that he found himself in from what was in his pocket day after day, he gladly gave that up for the joy of Jesus. As Jesus may have said to him, it is better to, seek join, uh, it's better to enter the kingdom of God with an old phone than an iPhone 14 and enter hell. Now that is not a rule. That is not your story necessarily. But it's the example of taking seriously, I will cut off what I have to in order to get the joy of Jesus and not go down a path where the fire never goes out. And thinking this way actually has a positive effect on your relationship with others too. And that's where 9, 49 and 50 come in. This is what Jesus gets to. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And and Meredith wonderfully kind of began pointing us back to the Old Testament here, but in Leviticus, salt was put on offerings. And in Exodus 30, God's space is to be filled with beauty and a fragrance, life, and lots of perfume, actually. 
would have smelled like when you walk through Maya, I reckon, the temple. In the, oh, that's nice. Maybe you don't like that smell, but, but salt was to go on everything to bring this, the fragrance and the smell out. And as Jesus' followers, our lives are to reflect a beautiful, fragrant offering to God. My life is the offering to God, right? And as 950 says, it's good. But to let the salt, salt leach out of us. And in Jesus' day, the salt came from the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea salt was not pure sodium chloride. Think back to high school science. It, came, it had gypsum and other things in it. So when you left the salt long enough, it would leach away and you'd be left with gypsum and other things you don't want to eat, right? And he says, don't let the salt go out of you. To lose the saltiness is to no longer be pure before God and at peace with others. It's letting sin reign in you and among us. But you know, by the grace of God, we can be at peace with ourselves and each other. By the grace of God, we can see other Christians, even in other churches in the area, even amongst us, not as threats, but rightly seeing our sin and the grace of God in Jesus to each of us. That by His grace, we would focus more on that than on someone else using the name of Jesus. Because what the disciples are learning, what we're learning too, day by day, is that no matter what your social background or your, your, whatever you've come from, whatever you may have done or may not do in the church or anything else, you are included in Christ. Yes, you are. And so are they. And so is everyone in the church down the road. Which means we should always be a place of unlikely friendships, never entitlement. A community where you grow to know and love people who are most unlike you, who forgive one another when wronged, who cheer each other on in the name of Jesus. But it may also be new to some of you. That following Jesus gives us a new ethic too, a new way of looking at life. But may I encourage you that that's okay if it's hard and pointy. But actually, it's all over the New Testament too. So Paul was an author who wrote a big slab of the New Testament, and he wrote to the Christians in Rome, and he agreed with Jesus on these points. This is not an isolated teaching, and he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And every one of you, if you know Jesus, stands in that we category. We all experience death to sin through the death of Jesus. But died is past tense. This is something that's occurred in us on the cross because his wounds heal us. Your ability to fight your remaining sin began with the finished work of Jesus and it goes on as you live in the life of Jesus by his spirit and by his grace. And if you feel sinful and ruined, relationally dead and drained today, may you know that because of Jesus, the conviction you feel is not the absence of grace, but the beginning of God salting you so that you would confess, repent, and find greater joy in Him than in sin. He is so wonderful and so kind to you. So come to Jesus with all your sin and let us be the big-hearted people of God too so that when we sin against each other, and we will do that, we would respond with the same grace Jesus has to us. As Paul later said in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. As you look around the church today, other Christians you know in other places, may you never stop paying off the mortgage of love to each other. And when someone has redrawn on that, 
Let's be gracious. May we be, as the disciples learnt here, through a very scandalous image and a confronting few moments, to be the big-hearted people of God who take our sin seriously for the grace and the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, there are tricky, hard things in your word, and we tremble before the reality of them. Father, but we know you speak that way to bring us to you, so that we would put away the sin that reigns, and we would embrace your grace and forgiveness for life. So may each of us today and this week be given all the grace, all the mercy that we need from you to live as your people in a tricky tangling, sin-filled world that rages on in us. Help us live in the life you give us that began when Jesus said it's finished. Amen.